0: Hi, welcome to The Kicker. CJR's weekly podcast about journalism. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher. Today is Wednesday, the 15th of February. This week, we're gonna be looking at how the White House is cherry picking reporters in the way it does its news conferences. Then we'll look at fake news on a local level with one of our correspondents. And finally, a look at how Standing Rock and the protest there has been covered and what's next in that ongoing drama. Leading us this week is CJR's senior Delacorte fellow, Dave Huberti. Hello, Dave. Hey
1: Kyle, how's it going?
0: I'm good, I'm good. So more drama with uh, Spicy.
1: More drama with Spicy, yeah, and it's moved beyond Saturday Night Live.
2: All right, look forward to it.
1: Thanks for that introduction, Kyle. And as you said, I'm Dave Uberti, a staff writer for Columbia Journalism Review. Before we start the show, I would ask you all to leave us some comments and share this episode of the podcast. We really thrive off of that sort of energy and feedback, so keep it coming in. I want to start our first segment on Donald Trump and the White House media strategy on display this week. And for this first segment, I'm going to bring on Pete Vernon, a Delacorte fellow for CGR, who's been following a lot of the press briefings from the White House. Pete, how's it going?
0: Good. Getting ready to uh, watch another briefing today.
1: (laughs) Does it get any better than that? Earlier this week, On Monday, President Trump and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau of Canada gave a joint press conference in which they each picked out two reporters from the crowd to ask questions. The two that Trump picked were from Sinclair Broadcasting, which is a set of local news affiliates around the country. This particular reporter is from Washington, and also the Daily Caller, which is a conservative website that does news and politics, among other things. Both reporters lobbed up pretty softball questions to the president. And it, it allowed him a lot of daylight to not address the news of the day, which was White House National Security Advisor Michael Flynn facing a lot of different questions about his communication with Russian officials during the transition period and, and potentially even before the election. A lot of mainstream reporters cried foul. And to me, it seemed a pretty clear representation of the way the White House is going to empower more favorable outlets by choosing them at the White House briefings or allowing them to get better access and disempowering the more critical outlets, some of the more mainstream venues such as the New York Times or perhaps CBS or the Associated Press.
0: And just to clarify this, so this was on Monday as news had broken over the weekend, beginning with the Washington Post report about Michael Flynn having discussed sanctions and the possible easing of sanctions with the Russian ambassador during the transition period. The news of the day was very clearly, here is the thing that everybody in national security circles, diplomatic circles, Washington circles was talking about. And while, of course, no outlet is under any obligation to ask any specific question. It would have seemed that given these two questions to the president, that this is something that should have happened. And many journalists took issue with this. Some of them even confronted the outlets that did lob up the softball questions.
1: Pete, you've been cataloging a lot of the questions that have been asked at the White House press briefing. And there's been a lot made by reporters on Twitter and in their own publications as how this administration is picking various news organizations compared to past administrations such as Obama's or Bush's. Just the differing outlets they choose to to address questions from.
0: In theory, I think what Sean Spicer has done, the White House press secretary Sean Spicer has done, is a a nice idea. He said, we want to bring in more outlets. We don't want to just rely on the front row, which traditionally has been the Associated Press gets the first question. You have the networks, the New York Times, the Washington Post. So he said, no, we want to allow outlets that represent different viewpoints uh, from different areas of the country, not just the Acela corridor, to ask questions. And that sounds nice in theory. What's happened in reality is that it seems that Spicer has used some administration-friendly outlets to kind of deflect from other issues to to give himself some breathing room when he's facing uh, a tough line of questioning, and at other times, you know, and again to his credit, he stepped up yesterday and basically dealt with all of the same reporters that any other administration, any previous press secretary probably would have called on. He went to, you know, the networks. He went to the major mainstream papers and answered questions about Michael Flynn's resignation. It's interesting. He's in a very difficult position. He obviously got off on the wrong foot by coming out the day after the inauguration and castigating the press for their Hmm. terrible reporting and telling everyone that it was the largest crowd to witness an inauguration, period. But watching him day in and day out, you get incredibly frustrated by him. And you also, if you step back, say, man, it's tough. He's got to defend what is sometimes obvious falsehoods or just difficult, aggressive questioning from the press. Um, It's not a job I would want. But this issue of who he's calling on is certainly an interesting one.
1: The way this plays out is a little bit different than it has in the past, which I think is important. If you spend a lot of time in right-wing media, whether that's places like The Daily Call or Breitbart or even getting more conspiratorial to places such as Gateway Pundit, which now has White House press credentials and InfoWars.
0: LifeZet and in those types. LifeZet,
1: exactly. You will see a clear bifurcation of media narratives. You have, on one hand, the New York Times, the Washington Post, CBS, and NBC News. They are running repeated stories of administration incompetence. You see, through the leaking of information and just an incredible amount of anonymous sources coming out of the woodworks to talk about the Trump administration, just a clear representation of warring factions within the White House. Some of these are civil servants who are crying out for help. Others are trying to advance their own career ends. Every source has a different motivation for speaking to the press. Flip to right-wing media. If you go to Breitbart, if you go to Daily Caller, Fox News you will see a very different uh, representation of the Trump administration. This is a president who's following through on campaign promises. This is a president who is battling Democrats and a crooked media who have teamed up together to take him down. Upsetting the Washington apple cart. Right, and I think one of the key distinctions also for people who follow the news very closely is my head is constantly spinning with the number of news stories coming out. There is confusion at every turn. It is very difficult for me, someone who tries to keep up with this, who does so professionally, to actually do so successfully, to actually know what's going on and and to know how to prioritize different news items. Take a step back and try to view that through the lens of someone who voted for Trump, who is a diehard Trump supporter. They see the confusion as actually something that he promised to do in the campaign trail. He's going to the swamp. He's draining it. He's shaking things up. He's firing people. He's changing official policy. And I think when we are reading the news, trying to follow it, trying to make sense of it all, we need to be cognizant of that, of these alternative realities. There's different, very different ways in which people view these sets of issues, right. uh, which, which I think is, is why this issue of who gets called on at the press conference is so important.
0: One through line through a lot of that conservative media, whether it's Fox News, whether it's Daily Caller, whether it's other conservative outlets, is that they are, much as much as we are, they are media critics. If you watch Fox News programming a lot of what you see is media criticism for a conservative voter who is a Trump supporter and gets their news through Fox News and and right-wing outlets they see people from the New York Times or NBC News or CNN getting upset about the way Sean Spicer's handling things or things that Trump and his mouthpieces have said and they see that as Trump doing what he promised to do take on the the crooked media there've been times when it has seemed especially galling the Uh, lengths that the president or his press secretary have gone to call on friendly outlets. You mentioned the Trudeau press conference. The second briefing, the first question went to LifeZet, which is a fringe kind of new digital media outlet started by Laura Ingram. Um, That has
1: frequently spread conspiracy theories in the past. Right.
0: So in that case, this shakeup of who gets the questions, I, I think, I would argue, was not a good thing. But other times you get questions going to Univision, you know, to the New York Post, which is um, a newspaper, it's a tabloid and it's read by hundreds of thousands of people. Um, So maybe it's a, you know, maybe you could argue that that's a good thing, that Univision and the New York Post and Politico are getting questions that used to go to the New York Times and CBS, you know, I, I can see an argument to be made there. But when you're getting a, a briefing room full of life sets and gateway pundit, places that just aren't holding themselves. They're, to this, they're not doing journalism. No, I feel fine saying they're partisan hacks who are not doing the sort of critical journalism that other outlets in that briefing room are.
1: I just want to also raise one point that I think you brought up a few weeks back on the show, which is that the Trump administration in many ways presents a huge opportunity for conservative media to really step up to the plate and do an awesome job of holding to account a guy who doesn't adhere to a lot of traditional Republican ideas or norms or what have you. To this point, I've, I've just not seen it. I I, I, yeah. I feel like if you, if you do read a lot of conservative media, obviously, this is a blanket statement and there are exceptions. The focus is really, at least to this point, geared toward criticism of mainstream media as opposed to original accountability reporting. Yeah,
0: that was the term I was going to use was original reporting, and there just hasn't been a ton of it. There have been some interesting think pieces. There have been some probably necessary pushback and saying, "Guys, in the mainstream media, you are freaking out about something right. that is really not that different than what previous administrations have done." Stop saying this is unprecedented. In certain instances, there has been an overreaction from the mainstream media, and sure. it's used to have a break on that from conservatives. But I would also love to see, uh, honestly, love to see some original reporting from those outlets, because Donald Trump, he is not obviously someone from the establishment. He's not someone who necessarily holds conservative principles that many of these outlets have kind of held up in years past. I think balanced reporting from them praising things that they admire, but digging into things that go against their belief systems would be really useful right now, especially when you're trying to, to reach audiences who might not trust the New York Times or CNN.
1: Yeah, I agree completely, Pete. And we will leave it there for this segment. Thanks so much for being on this week.
0: Thanks for having me. Always good to be here.
1: All right. For my second segment this week, I want to turn to a topic that we've talked about repeatedly in The Kicker, which is fake news. So we're recording this on Wednesday afternoon. And at 640 a.m. this morning, Donald Trump once again lambasted the media on Twitter by saying, quote, The fake news media is going crazy with their conspiracy theories and blind hatred. MSNBC and CNN are unwatchable. Fox and Friends is great. End quote. So this has been a repeated tactic that Trump and a lot of his aides at the White House have been leveling against a lot of the mainstream players doing critical coverage of the administration. But we have a reporter for CJR who's been documenting this phenomenon at the local level, which has been a very interesting to see how it plays out. Corey Hutchins is a reporter for the Colorado Independent, which is a nonprofit news organization. And he's also a correspondent for the United States Project at CJR, which covers local media. Corey, thanks for being on the show. I want
2: to say, first of all, that I know killed fake news, but I think you buried it in Pet Cemetery because it's coming back kind of weirder than ever.
1: Right, it's a zombie apocalypse of fake news.
2: This piece that I wrote uh, for the United States Project that, that came out this morning is like a total rabid man-bite-dog story. In, in this instance, what happened here was a Republican lawmaker, who was on Trump's campaign in Colorado, by the way, and they, he might run for governor.
1: That was the uh, least surprising part of the story to me, but go on.
2: So he uh, didn't like him that appeared in this hometown newspaper that's a family-owned Grand Junction Daily Sentinel. And so he tweeted out on our Facebook that you know, we have our own fake news here in, in Grand Junction. The newspaper hit back pretty hard. The uh, publisher published a, an op-ed on uh, Saturday pointing out uh, how the newspaper is not fake news, and really defending its paper, but also saying at the very end, I'll see you in court. And so I, I, I called him about that to see if that was a you know, tongue-in-cheek He said it is not. This publisher is uh, seriously considering a lawsuit against a sitting state senator in Colorado over allegations that his newspaper is fake news.
1: I thought the interesting part about this as well was that the publisher was very stung. You know, he he said, call us liberal, call us conservative, but when you call us fake news, that really cuts deep, and that's unacceptable.
2: Right, he said it gets to the core of what the newspaper does. Um, And I will point out that... This is this is not just a but while he's doing the whole like I'm on the front lines of the First Amendment thing, this publisher uh, had a previous career as an attorney. He was a, a litigator in Kansas City for 13 years, and he handled business litigation. Yeah, while well, I'm a publisher now, he he came on board at the Grand Junction Daily Sentinel, I think in, in 2009. His family owns the paper. Um, he said, you know, if this lawmaker comes at me like this, I'm going to go back to what I used to do, and I'm going to protect my business in court.
1: The fact that it, it's a business is is sort of the crux of the issue here. I mean, you referenced this in your story, but the publisher said that he had seen some feedback on Facebook where people were actually saying in response to this lawmaker's statement that they were thinking about canceling their subscriptions. That's right. I'm I'm, I'm curious. Uh, where, have you seen sort of fake news generally? This this theme, this motif, this topic that has really bedeviled journalists recently play out in any other way on a local level? You you, you cover this stuff probably as good as anyone.
2: I in Colorado, I wrote about this uh, a couple weeks ago. An anonymous blog in Colorado, a conservative blog, published a, a, a blog item um, essentially calling credible news organizations fake news when they reported on a story involving a Republican congressman here in Colorado who had held a constituent meeting, a public meeting, and a whole bunch of people showed up and they wanted to talk about uh, how this guy wants to repeal Obamacare. And he kind of he left early. Uh, out a back door and a TV news camera caught it. There was only one reporter there, it was a TV news reporter, and his, his story kind of blew up. It, it became national news. You know, the narrative was, are we going to see more of this? Is this like the Tea Party in reverse? And uh, after the story came out, the Denver Post published a piece, and they did not have a reporter there. They published a piece and, and just had a, an error in the story and, and wrote something like that the, the congressman had not left early. Um, a uh, blog picked up on that and <laughs> used an error in the Denver Post to essentially call Nine News and, and others who reported this uh, fake news. Uh, and so the, the Post, you know, corrected their story three days later. But in that in that time, it allowed you know a ideologically motivated you know, online blog to you know, weaponize the term fake news against a credible news organization and, and muddy the water. We're seeing, and what you described at the beginning of this segment is is that we'll see uh, politicians and others when they don't like specific coverage, uh, calling it fake news, because they, they know it. it's a way to discredit a news organization in a way that sticks.
1: And just to be clear, this this has been evident on both sides of the aisle. If you, if you pay attention to either national or state politics, you see this tactic playing out um, with Democrats and Republicans often. You know, I'm, I'm curious, at the national level, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about this, and I think the general consensus is that one of the things that's contributed to the rise of, quote-unquote, fake news, but more broadly, bad information floating around, is the shrinking of legitimate news organizations, the fragmentation of the media environment. A lot of people feel disengaged from the, quote-unquote, mainstream media. And in many cases, not just fake news outlets, but partisan Facebook pages or you know, blogs or whatnot that comment on politics and current events, they have sort of come into that vacuum and sort of established themselves and in, in many cases created very large audiences. We, mem- we mentioned in our last segment, Gateway Pundit, which is a right-wing blog which has borderline conspiracy theories as some of its stories, and it has amassed 600,000 Facebook followers. So I'm kind of curious, from your vantage point, as someone who covers local media, do you think the same dynamic is at play? The atrophy of local media has, in some ways, contributed to creating an opening for a lot of false information or bad information, or, or just people who are trying to get right but maybe don't really have the journalistic chops?
2: That, that's hard to say, because I do think what we, what we see, we see this in studies, right? People these days are, are looking more for news that confirms their own biases rather than, challenges them or or gives them a point of view that they might not agree with. And, you know, while we see it at the national level, I think that you do see it at the local level. I think, you know, well, I should say I worry that partisan or ideologically oriented online news outlets that pop up uh, to try and combat coverage that they don't agree with does get a a kind of larger audience. But yeah, you know, that's just to say, I will say that uh, one thing I did want to bring up is... Should we have uh, reported on this threat of a lawsuit anyway? Um, and that's something I wanted to kind of get, get your take on it. Uh, you know, because we, we do talk about, in media sometimes, about, like, well, should we report on threats of lawsuits or wait until they're filed? And is it the case where we wanted to write about this because, you know, we cover the media, and it's, it's like, you know, uh, it's, it's definitely a, a media story. Um, do I even want to see this lawsuit play out? Yeah, it would be fun to cover. Totally. So See this turning into one of those situations where what if we end up with, you know, I don't know what fake news is, or I don't know how to define it, but I know it when I see
1: it kind of thing. I certainly think it is squishy territory to report on lawsuit threats, but I, I do think sort of your story that's on cgr.org does pretty fairly lay out that this is a new response from news organizations. I mean, I have not seen, for example, the, I mean, the New York Times or CNN saying, hey, you can't call us fake news because that's libelous. I haven't seen that retort, even rhetorically speaking. So I think that the, the fact that this you know, very small newspaper in Colorado did that is notable. And it's obviously you know, in no small part because this guy's a former lawyer.
2: Right. And I think that's why this is, is going to get a whole lot more national. The publishers probably gonna get a whole lot more calls later on this week.
1: And we hope to see more of your coverage on CJR if and when that happens. Thanks, Corey. We really appreciate your time and help here. So for our third topic, I want to take us to the Dakota Access Pipeline, which has been in and out of the news, mostly out of the news for the last several months. We have on the show today a journalist who's been there for a long time, who covers indigenous communities. Jenny Monet is a freelance reporter. She's done a lot of work for the Center for Investigative Reporting and PBS NewsHour recently. She was also recently arrested at Standing Rock and is writing a piece for CJR.org. Jenny, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks. So I would like to, you know, get into your personal uh, ordeal recently. But first, before we, we take that step, I was curious, you know, what brought you to the story of Dakota Access Pipeline and the Standing Rock protests and give me a, a sense of, you know, as someone who's been there for several months, who's done the day in and day out legwork on this story, what, what is your take on sort of the media coverage, the trajectory of media coverage over the last six months or so when this has been an issue? I seem to recall this coming up in, you know, mainstream outlets in a big way in maybe November or so, but I really can't recall since then a lot of focus on this.
3: I actually learned about Standing Rock, uh, like many people, from the internet, but my attention was drawn in August. And you, know, you just felt this kind of energy pulling you in from from that moment. And there was just a lot of really articulate young Native people talking about the water in a way that, I mean, I was convinced. Um, but I wasn't really convinced even then. I was thinking about making my first visit out to Standing Rock. But if, what, what really kind of uh, flipped the switch for me was when I was kind of doing research on another story talking to one of the former tribal chairmen on the phone from one of the neighboring tribes here from Cheyenne River. And as I'm trying to just kind of whittle direction to one topic, he kept going back to Standing Rock. And I was I was like, yeah, 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 it's really great, it's really great. And he kept returning back to this kind of energy he was feeling. And he's like, all these tribes are coming. And every topic just kept leading back to Standing Rock. So we arrived the day of the dog attack. And um, I don't know if you know what that means, but here at Standing Rock, it is this real galvanizing moment. It's the dramatic uh, conflict between these private security guards and the protesters, or water protectors as they're called, and these private guards, vicious dogs as a way of crowd control, and um, it's what. Amy Goodman documented and, you know, in a video that just went viral, it's what led to her arrest warrant. So it just was a galvanizing moment, I think, for everybody. And for me being there on the ground, what it said to me was, oh, this is different. I mean, because at the point, we saw just kind of this unifying gathering at, at Standing Rock. But this was a real intense kind of scene that we saw at what lengths this energy company was going to go to guard this pipeline. You know, I instantly thought of third world countries and the militarized terror that they're dealing with down there, but this was America. So for me, it was my first real kind of, you know, dose of just like, wow, what's happening at Standing Rock is going to be big.
1: The piece that you wrote for CJR, you bring up a lot of these larger themes about media coverage of the Dakota Access Pipeline and also the protests at Standing Rock, um, but you also bring yourself into it, and, you, and it, it seems like you've, you had to go through a pretty harrowing ordeal uh, where you were actually arrested while covering one of these protests and had to, had to spend some time in jail. Tell me what happened, how the arrest actually went down, and, and what the, the process afterward has been.
3: My arrest is really good inside look of what's really been at the heart of this struggle here and that is this kind of chronic discrimination and contempt that uh, native americans face among their white neighbors and it's something i've written about and have only been able to write about as an observer and my arrest brought me inside to the trenches that the water protectors have endured for their protesting punishment right as just Standing in civil disobedience and going through this system, I'm humiliated, being stripped, or some of the white women in my jail were not, were, did not have to go through this quote-unquote visual inspection. A jail captain calls it but the Native women like me were. So, I mean, it's just those kind of things where I feel like, okay, you guys want to arrest me? I'm going to, you're giving me this added exposure. I firmly believe my charges should be dropped. I'm strongly calling for this um For my criminal trespassing and engaging in a riot to be dropped because I was there doing my job. I was not, you know, raising fists and locking arms with the water protectors. There was a clear distinction that I was standing back with my microphones and my camera and taking notes. And when they knew I was a journalist, they should have just let me go. Instead, what they did was this officer came up to me and he said, you know, you walk or you're going to get arrested. And without argument, I started walking. I didn't even think at the time that I was in any kind of under threat to be arrested because I had just complied so far with showing my credentials and moving out of the way. And this guy told me to leave, so I left. And uh, when I was walking away, I was thinking about, like, oh, man, how am I going to, you know, manage all my deadlines now? I'm not thinking that, you know, I'm going to be faced with these uh, misdemeanors.
1: You mentioned this in in your piece, which is that, you know, in— wake of your arrest, you were noticing a lot of the reports of your arrest that the local police department had leaked false information regarding what you had done to the local newspapers. And I'm just kind of curious, if is that from your observation point, a common tactic? Like when, when we are reading reports out of this issue, to what extent should we lend credence to the information coming from local authorities?
3: It's 100% the, the trend of how this movement has been portrayed. You know, Bismarck is a small market, media market. A lot of the reporters here are, you know, fresh out of college and these are their first gigs. And so, you know, what they're given are press releases from Morton County Sheriff's Department or their public information offices that have patently, erroneously described these peaceful and prayerful demonstrations as riots. And I've been at numerous of these these actions where people are standing you know, sure, private property in common civil disobedience is not an outlandish practice for protest.
1: I just wanted to ask you one more uh, quick question before I let you go here. It seems now with the Trump ad- administration in power that there's increasingly motion on this front. It seems as if uh, work has resumed on the pipeline. I mean, What's the state of play right now, and do you see a return of media attention in response to it?
3: The situation is kind of in its final legal attempt to stop the pipeline on behalf of the tribe. And when I say tribes, I mean the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe and its sister nation, um, the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe. And, you know, I think that they're running out of options. No one really wants to face that music, but the pipeline has resumed construction. um, And, you know, energy transfer uh, officials that I've spoken with are just at a fast and furious pace to play catch-up. They've lost millions of dollars in the delays. And I think that your question about whether or not media will return they might come back to see the empty field where uh you know the camp once thrived i don't have a lot of confidence that that will happen i think that it'll take some kind of major confrontation for media to come back here um and there is that possibility that you know people so impassioned about stopping this pipeline would do something to put their life in the way of that of you know, the completion of that project. That's certainly why I'm sticking around to see what
1: happens. Well, we will be looking forward to more of your reporting. Jenny Monet, thanks so much for sharing your story and for being on the podcast. Thanks
3: for having
1: me. That was our show. Thanks for kicking it with us. I want to thank Pete Vernon, a Delacorte Fellow for CJR, and also Corey Hutchins, a United States Project Correspondent for CJR, along with Jenny Monet, a freelance reporter from Standing Rock. Subscribe to our show via iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Please leave us comments and share this episode. And while you're at it, go to cjr.org, become a member of CJR. You get a few print issues a year. You get a weekly newsletter from Yours Truly and some other special features from our editor and publisher, Kyle Pope. Once again, at cgr.org. I'm Dave Uberti, staff writer for CGR. Thanks for taking it with us. We will see you next week.